For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? One of the best parts about doing worship team in the morning is that you sit down behind that piano and the, the, the sanctuary is about, well, sanctuary, the gym's about half full and then you come up behind it and it's like, whoa, look at all these people, this is great. Anyway, the rest of you, um, open your Bibles to Psalm uh, 2. Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. It's in your order of worship. Uh, many of you can pop it up on your device. Or um, if you don't own a Bible, there's, there are, I don't know, four or five of them in the back table there. Those are for you. If you need one, grab one. That is, that is our gift to you. Um, glad you could. It, it's good to have everybody in the, the same room this morning. It's, it's fun. Uh, and, and it's good to be together today. Let me remind us what we're doing as we, as we find our places in God's Word. Today, like I said earlier, is the day that we, in the church, that we celebrate what's called Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, brought, uh, kind of began that last week of his life, kicked it off with a bang. There was a parade, and there's people laying palms down, and sometimes they're laying their jackets down so a donkey could walk over them. Who does that? But they're, they're excited about Jesus coming into Jerusalem Hailing him Hosanna, which means save, son of David, which means you're our king. They're, they're delighting in and enjoying and, and celebrating the coming of the one that they thought, and rightly so, is their king. What The irony of this, I and mean, I'm sure you've heard this before, is that these folks are screaming Hosanna on Sunday, and in just a few days, they're going to be yelling crucify. Because Jesus never seems to... Meet our expectations the way we want them to. The reality is, is that this notion of a coming king is not far from us. Our desire to have someone come and bring order to our chaos is evident all the time. And if we need any more evidence of this, just think about the election cycle. I mean, how often do we, do we go into uh, you know, the, an election year thinking to ourselves, our guy is finally going to make things right. And then you get your guy, and then like two years later, you're like, bah, what was that? But we always think it. The day that we celebrate today speaks to that, why that is, what we want, and how God has answered that longing. So if you have your place in Psalm 2, our habit here is to stand in honor of God's Word as we, as we hear it, it expounded to, under the preaching of God's Word. So I'm going to be reading all of Psalm 2. Don't panic. It's only 12 verses. So... Um, This is God's word to us. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your 
heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, into this time, as we celebrated this morning, hailing the coming of our King, we ask, O Lord, our King, that you would send your Spirit to not only communicate your presence to us, but to speak and preach your word to us. Would you soften our hearts and open our minds? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear you and hearts to receive you? You are our King. And so we ask that you would uh, rule and reign over us this day and this time and speak words of eternal life to us, for we are needy and dependent on them. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Our relationship to authority is rather ambivalent, I think, as I'm reading this passage about kings and all this stuff. We are rather ambivalent at best about authority, but the Bible seems to tell us over and over that authority, and specifically kingship, uh, is not foreign to us. That instead is something that we were designed for. To attempt to answer all the questions that when I say that to a group of Americans will undoubtedly come up. We're going to look at this passage in a few ways, okay? There's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful to you if you're a note taker. If not, don't worry about it. We're going to look at the king we need, the king we want, and the king we have. That's really simple, right? The king we need, the king we want, and the king we have. All right, let's start with the king we need. Now, as soon as I say that, some of us already get uncomfortable, right? Like I said, we're American after all. But think with me, this, think with me for a second. Think about the stories we love. Right when um, most of us in this room at this point, because of the movies, are familiar with the stories of Tolkien. Right when 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 J.R.R. Tolkien decided to um, and, and was going to write a, a new mythology, we'll call it a new a new tale that kind of, in a sense, drew together so many of the great stories and legends and tales that he was enamored with. That story ended up being formed around, shaped around a king, a coming king. I mean, you remember, he, there's, a, there's a king in the north. And when he comes, he will make all things right. The hands of the king are healing hands. He will, he will make all things right. The, and that's not foreign. That's not just kind of uh, something Tolkien came up with. So many of our stories start with, long ago, there was a far-off kingdom ruled by a good and wise and loving king. And everyone prospered and all things were well. But then the king goes away. And everything falls apart. Why is it that so many of our stories kind of come into that idea of a good and wise king? And why is it that we are all seem pulled towards this idea of kingship? Even for those of us, look, we're, we live in a country, we don't do kings, right? At least we don't have blood kings. We make kings. We make queens. We call them celebrities. We call them sports stars, right? LeBron is called... King James, right? I mean, this is, this is what he's called. Why do we call him? It's because he's the king. We, we even, to some extent, make, make kings and royalty out of, out of uh, mafia men, like gangsters. We treat them the same way. It, this is, this is, it seems like endemic to us, but why? Well, let me talk to you a little bit about the king of the story, because this is why. The Bible would argue that in all of us, there's a kind of genetic memory 
a long dormant, we'll call it a royalty gene, right? That you and I were made for authority. We were made as dependent creatures, that God created all of humanity to be dependent on him. And when I say that, I, I don't mean um, just for certain things, but for everything. We rely on him for everything. But that doesn't mean that we have an invitation to passivity. You see, in the, in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis, after God creates everything, he tells Adam and his wife that they can eat of any of the trees of the garden, right? As many of you know this story. You can eat of any of the trees of the garden except one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we tend to think, because this, the, this is part of the lie that was told to them later, that there's something magical about this tree, and that's why we have a hard time believing the story. There's something, well, that and the talking snake. But there's something magical about this tree that when you eat the fruit... You somehow get magic powers to know what's good and what's evil. And they didn't have these powers before. But that's not, that's not really the case. I mean, that's what the snake said. That's not what God said. That tree is a place of testing. And it asks us this question. Will we rely on God to determine reality for us? To tell us what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong? Or will we seek to be our own authority? Will we seek to be our own determiner, our own arbiter of those things? See, we were made to be dependent on God, and not just for life and breath, which the Bible says we are, whether we like it or not, but, but in fact, for also our understanding of reality. We were made for authority. But not just where we made for authority, we were made to exercise authority. This is what it means when God creates humanity and then tells them uh, to, to take dominion over the earth. That, that word dominion means to rule. It, it has to do with ruling. It means authority. Now, what that doesn't mean is abuse or exploitation, or the kind of authority that uses others. It's, it's God's authority, and that's not the way God rules. We were to be dependent on God even for, our, even for what authority looks like. So we were made to be under authority, but also in authority. Why does that matter? It matters simply this. Authority structures are not the result of sin. It's what we were made for. Now, abusive ones... Oppressive ones, yes, absolutely the result of sin. But we were made for authority and to be in authority. But the reality is, is that things change, right? The story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with this beautiful picture of a garden and, and loveliness and, and everyone getting along fine and singing kumbaya. We rejected this authority. We turned from God. We wanted to be our own authority. And when I say that, what I mean by that is it wasn't just some kind of like protest. It wasn't like a march, right? Because we were made not for subjugation, but for relationship, which means we turned away not just from a ruler, but from a father. And the entire story of the Bible then is how God, as rightful ruler of the world, is going to restore his rule over rebellious creation, namely us. And that brings us to Psalm 2. So we can see the king that we want. Look there in verses 1 to 3 to see our rage. You notice the language that the psalm uses? Rage, plotting, conspiring, bursting of bonds, casting away cords. What is going on here? Basically it's this. The psalmist, and, and by psalmist, I mean someone who wrote a psalm. That's what we call them there. This is a psalm. Okay, and this, he, The person who wrote it is called a psalmist. Um, the psalmist is, taking, is, is talking about our stance towards God. You see, the Bible is clear that when we turn from God, way back when, we were changed. 
that though we were created to depend on him, created for authority and to be in authority, that, that we became rebels. And by that I mean not that we become rebels when we rebel, but that something changed in us that now we are rebels. And you can see this happen even in the story. Think back in the garden, right? Um, uh, the, the, the woman, her name is Isha at this point. Her name is not Eve. I know that's a little confusing, but Adam renames her. We'll get to that. So the, the woman eats, eats the fruit, and nothing happens, right? She listens to the snake. She eats the fruit. Nothing happens. And she gives it to her husband, Adam. He eats the fruit, and everything changes. And then God comes walking. It says that God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which is this beautiful picture of God pursuing relationship with us, even in our rebellion. But, he, but Adam is hiding. And so God asks him, Adam, where are you? And he doesn't ask him that because he doesn't know where he is. It's, again, God pursuing us in our rebellion. He's, he's inviting him into relationship. Adam comes out saying, I, I, was, I was afraid of you. I heard you walking. I was scared. Well, that's new. Uh, so God says, well, you were scared. Why, why were you scared? Did you, did you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat? Right? It's beautiful. The, the story so far is, is, is wonderful. God's pursuing. Adam's kind of hesitant, scared, but responding. And then all of a sudden... Did, did I eat the fruit? That woman that you gave me? She? Yeah, she gave me the fruit, and then I ate. Do you get what he's doing? You hear the accusation? I mean, I hope so. If not, I need to see some drama lessons, apparently. But, like, yeah, do you hear the accusation? Like, the point is, that woman that you gave me, This is actually your fault. And if it's not your fault, it's at least her fault. It's certainly not my fault. This is on you. We rage at God's authority over us, don't we? And that is why we have these different visions of God. We have what I like to call um, God to me. Okay, Almost everyone in this room, at some point in our lives, if not right now, have this vision. It's God to me. We we call him God or her. We, We call it God, but it's God to me. And here's what I mean. God to me is this force. Which really means that God isn't a person who actually expects anything of us. Or, God to me is like this old grandfather who loves everybody, but doesn't really care what we do. Which really means God doesn't care enough about me to pay attention or want what's best for me. But in all of it, it's God to me. It's our definition. The Bible's view, though, is that God is a person. A person who thinks and feels and desires. He created us for himself. He created us to flourish in relationship with him. What's interesting about this particular passage is the way it talks about who our rage is against. Look down at verse 2. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, first, uh, notice there, there is this bit of geopolitical flair to this, right? The kings of the earth, it has to do with nation states and rulers and and all of that. So we'll get to that. It's about worldly rulers. But second is the way that they are raging. They're raging against the Lord and his anointed. Now, some of you know this, but when you see the word Lord all in capital letters in the Old Testament, that is our translator's way of translating a particular name of God. A particular way that he talks about himself. And it's the way in which he talks about himself in covenant relationship with his people, a name that was only revealed to his people 
and was meant to be part of how they were to understand him in a covenant relationship. In other words, um, a covenant, what's a covenant? Um, A covenant is a promise-bound relationship. It is a relationship that is more loving than a strictly legal arrangement, but it's more binding and bound than one that's simply emotive. Right? There's nothing like it, honestly, except covenants in all of our experience. It is the name that God gives his people to associate with his rescue plan, his way of rescuing us. Because you see, God didn't leave us in in our rebellion. He determined to rescue us from it. And he had every right to deal with humanity as the rebels that we were. But instead, out of his grace, which means unmerited favor, not something we earned, just something he chose to do, he chose to rescue us instead. And he did so by entering into a covenant, that promise-bound relationship. And when he did that, when he entered into that, he revealed himself as Yahweh, what we translate in the Old Testament oftentimes as Lord in all capital letters. So when they are raging against God, we need to understand that this isn't some kind of generic God. This isn't God to me. This is the God of the Bible, the God who has been wronged and yet promised to save. That is who they were raging against. And their rage is against God and his anointed. Now, we don't use that word a lot. Again, I've heard it most often in context of sports stars. But uh, we don't use the word anointed a lot. But in the Old Testament, that is the way you talked about a king. You see, God promised, and as the Old Testament unfolds, we see this begin to unfold, that he would rescue humanity, he would rescue all of us. He would, he would bring his good and wise rule to the world through a singular king. And we rage against this. And there are a couple of ways that we see this. Two lenses, if you will, I think, that we can look at this rage. The first is kind of the wide-angle lens. And that has to do with that geopolitical reality I was talking about, right? This passage points to the fact that you have these political powers in the world, vying for power, seeking to assert their agenda, define what is right, what is good, based on their own mindsets, their own self-understanding, and then they legitimize that through force. Whoever's got the biggest guns, the biggest missiles, theirs is the good agenda, right? That is true of every nation-state in the world. Not just those out there. All of them. And this passage certainly speaks to that. But the second lens that I think is probably more apropos for us here in this place is the narrow one that looks to the individual. Because you see, the only reason why nations do this kind of thing is because we do. Because individuals do. The philosopher, the existentialist, French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre talked about it in terms of a terrible freedom. And what he meant by that terrible freedom was, was, that, uh, was that we, well, we would say we desire. He would say we are able to, and in fact we must. We would say we desire to define reality, to define meaning for ourselves. That we are each, we have to do that. There's no one over us to do that. We are our authority. And the reason why he called it terrible is because you're exposed. When you, when you are the one who defines reality for yourself, when you are the one who defines meaning for yourself, all of that weight of, of your selfhood suddenly rests on your shoulders, and it's a terrible burden to bear. But it is the burden that says, I call the shots. I am beholden to no one. See, this is, this is why we hate this. We, we want authority, 
We want to call the shots, but at the end of the day, we just want one that agrees with everything we do. Not necessarily us, but someone else who agrees with us, will never challenge us, but, but can be authority over us. Why? Because then we don't ever have to change. We're not ever challenged. And when something goes bad, it's on them. They wear the weight and not us. But friends, you can't have it both ways. And that's where this rage comes from. But now let's look at God's response. Look down at verses 4 to 6. He laughs. That's encouraging, right? God laughs. Great. Uh, Why? Simple. God is God, and we are not. It's very simple. I know we want to think differently, but we can't. God is God, and we are not. God is the creator. We are the created. He spun the universe into existence. Most of us can't spin a basketball on our fingers, right? Look, I'm a cat guy, which isn't that I don't like dogs. I just find them to be less emotionally complex and therefore emotionally inferior animals. But that's not the point. I'm a cat guy, and you know the joke, right? Um, Cats, the joke is that cats are sitting there on their haunches looking at you, trying to figure out how they're going to kill you, right? That's the way cats look around at people, like... I will kill you in your sleep. My oppressor, he walks this way and that. Like, this is the way we think of cats. And it's a joke. Why is it a joke? Because they're cats. They're cats. They're dependent on us. My cat literally will walk around all day long yowling because he needs food in his bowl. Like, he's a cat. That's why it's a joke. In the same way, friends, we can rage all we want, but it doesn't change anything Reality is not for us to define. God is God, and we are not. But it's verses 5 and 6 that the clincher, though. Look there. God says this. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, here's what that means. The Bible is clear that we are all, all of us, not just some of us, all of us are by nature in rebellion against God. But also that he will establish his king who will set the world right. And we'll deal with rebellion one way or, the, or another. And Christianity's claim is that all of that, all of that promise is exactly what God has done in Jesus. See, that's why all these people are waving palms. That's why all these people are laying down their coats for the donkey to walk across. Hopefully he just keeps walking, doesn't leave anything for other coats. But he just keeps walking. And this is, this is why Jesus came into Jerusalem. This is why this matters. See, they knew God would establish his kingdom. They knew that God would finally make things the way they, that they always wanted. And they thought Jesus was the dude. And he was. But just not as they thought. The way in which God states this here in verse 6 is important though. Right? Look at, look at verse 6 where he says, I, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. Listen. Christianity is called good news. Not good advice. It's a really important distinction. Because, you see, most religions are good advice. And good advice, you can ignore. Like, "Ah, that's good advice, but I got my own way. Good news, in other words, news, something that is objectively reported as happening, you can ignore it, but it doesn't make it any less true. Christianity is good news. Not good advice. Now, I I know that many of us want to believe we can play fast and loose with history, but 
Here is the reality that is not in serious dispute, okay? If, you're, if you've got your doubts about Christianity, listen close. Because here's, here's, let me be honest with you. I'll be honest about what is not in dispute. Jesus lived. He made a lot of claims that have been recorded and established. He was killed by Romans, put in a tomb, and his, his followers suddenly went silent. They went dark. They went in hiding. But three days later, his body is gone, and his once forlorn and beaten and invisible followers are in the streets proclaiming something that would have been absurd to them three days before that. That Jesus is risen from the dead and is now king of the universe. And the fulfillment of the entire story of the Bible. You may choose not to believe it. You may claim it doesn't apply to you. But let me tell you, the Bible would argue that holding that, claiming that it doesn't apply to you, is like walking down a railroad track, saying, I don't really believe in trains. It's not going to go well. It is true whether you believe it or not. And that is why Psalm 2 says, God laughs. But that's not necessarily good news, is it? Right? What what makes the news good? Um, That, in fact, deals with the king that we have. Look down at verses 7 to 9. The covenant God says, You are my son, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. All right, what does that mean? And, and what is all this about being broken with iron? That does not sound pleasant, Rick. What, what is that about? Again, the fact that the psalmist uses God's covenant name is important. Because you see, God's name was revealed in that way to people who he said, I am not going to destroy you, I will rescue you. It's super important that we understand that that name is associated with this here. Because God made a promise that he would deal with our rebellion right in the garden. Right in the garden. He turns to Adam and he's like, what have you done? And after he makes this promise to Adam that I'm going to make things right, Adam understood this, which is why he renamed his wife. His wife's name was Eshai, now names her Eve. Why? Because Eve means we're going to live. We are going to live. We are not going to die. We are not going to be destroyed like the rebels we are. So how can the first rebel seem to assume that God would deal with rebellion in a way that would actually spare rebels? How do you do that? How do you deal with a rebellion in a way that spares rebels? This is answered, the New Testament claims, in Jesus. You see, the New Testament consistently points to these verses. Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the the New Testament. And it consistently points to these verses to talk about Jesus and his work. See, Jesus comes and he's hailed as king at his birth. Right? You, you know the story. It's Christmas time. And there's angels singing and shepherds. Not sure why shepherds come. Nobody liked them much. But then these wise men show up and they're giving him presents. He's king. But then he hangs out as a carpenter for most of his life. Until one day he comes on the scene. And he goes to this crazy dude in camel, camel hair uh, who's, who's standing in the Jordan. And he is anointed as king. That's what that is all about. It's a kingly anointing. He's anointed in the Jordan River. And when this happens, the Gospels tell us that there is a voice that people hear. Lots of people that says, this is my son. I delight in him. And then Jesus goes about his work. And that work is pushing back darkness. 
He heals sickness. He delivers people from oppression. He draws in the alienated. He forgives the guilty. But he also tells us that to be a part of his kingdom, we have to be reconciled to God. And that will mean placing our faith in him instead of ourselves. Trusting in him. Relying on him instead of us. He calls those crowds that hailed him on Sunday to give up their vision for flourishing and trust his. Give up their desires for power and prestige. To give up their desire to, to, to punish the nations for what they had done to them. And that doesn't go over well. We rage. And we rage, friends, because we are rebels. The Bible tells us we rebel because we're rebels. We're not rebels because we rebel. And so Jesus went to the cross. Why? He went to the cross to be dashed to pieces. Like the Psalm 2 says. To be dashed to pieces in the place of rebels. He took the rebels' death in the place of rebels before God so that when we place our faith in Him, we could be reconciled to God. So that the rebel can be reconciled and the rebellion can be crushed at the same time. But friends, let us not be fooled. There's another place where this psalm is picked up in the Bible. It's the last book of the Bible, John's Revelation. And it is talked, it, it is elicited, it is brought in to talk about Jesus' return, that he will come again to finally and fully set the worlds to rights, that rebellion will not be tolerated forever. Revelation 19.15 uses this image to talk about Jesus finally putting an end to sin and rebellion, taking up that rod of iron. Listen to me. We rage at God, and he laughs. We think what we're doing is we're finding some way to assert ourselves, and we're, we're the three-year-old in the corner turning blue. I'll show you, Dad. God laughs. Judgment is inevitable. We can either be judged in Jesus and be rescued or face our judgment before God, but we cannot get beyond his reign. Why? Because all the ends of the earth are his possession. He rules everywhere. So what should be our response? Look down at verses 10 to 12. The psalmist says that our response is to serve with humility. That's what it means with fear. It's humility. And to rejoice with awe. What does that mean? Namely this. God owes us nothing. And he gives us everything. God owes us nothing and he gives us everything. We are rebels. But he offers us everything. And so we are to serve him. Which means to return him to that place of authority in our lives. And to serve him with humility. Because we know we are not God. We are dependent on him. And we cannot be God. And we are to rejoice with awe. What does that mean? Listen, imagine something from... Imagine you live in a kingdom and, and you are a rebel. You're a terrorist. And you get caught. And you get brought before the king. And the gallows is over there. And it's waiting for you. And he says, out of my kindness, I'm not just going to pardon you. I'm going to make you heir to my throne. How would, 
How would you respond to that? I mean, needless to say, you'd be pretty happy, right? But not just pardoned, made heir. This is what this is talking about. To rejoice with awe. Who would do something like that? And then he says, to kiss the son. That means to pay him homage. To honor him as king. That's what you would do to royalty. You would honor them as king. So what does it mean to honor Jesus as your king? Let me suggest four things. First and foremost, honoring Jesus as your king. Jesus told his disciples it will mean letting him wash your feet. What? Jesus, in in John chapter 13, Jesus tells Peter, he says right before he's betrayed, right? It's it's when he institutes the supper and then he he stands up, and this is on Thursday. We would celebrate this Thursday this week. It's called Maundy Thursday. He stands up, he puts a towel around, he begins washing his feet. Peter's like, what are you doing? Have you seen my feet? You're not washing my feet. Peter, and Jesus looks at me and says, Peter, if I can't wash you, you have no part in me. We have to let him wash our feet. What this means is dumping our pride and acknowledging that we need Jesus to be right before God. We need his perfect life since ours isn't. Stop pretending. It's not. And it doesn't have to be. And we need his sin-bearing death so that we won't. And we need to see that this is truly, purely out of grace and not something we've earned. So first and foremost, it means letting Jesus wash our feet. Secondly, it means believing what he says. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, "If If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. If then statement. If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Listen to me. Jesus is not your totem. Right? Your little rabbit's foot. If you think you are following Jesus, but he never challenges you. Okay? I've said this the last couple of weeks, but I want to make it clear again. If you, if you say you're following Jesus and he never challenges you, you are not following Jesus. You are following you in a Jesus suit. Okay? It's like you with Birkenstocks and, and a robe, and you're walking in long hair and flowing, but you never challenge you. You're following you. You're not following Jesus. So it means letting him wash your feet. It means believing what he says. Third, it means obedience. In Luke 6, Jesus asked, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Listen. We have this image, and I think evangelical Christianity has, has kind of proliferated this image, that Christianity is about believing certain things. Right? So long as you believe those certain things, well, I, I get Jesus. Yeah, 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 Savior. He's my Savior. I've trusted Him for my Savior. did a long time ago. That we think as long as we've got our beliefs straight, it doesn't really matter if it has impact in our lives, but that is not the way the New Testament tells us faith in Christ is. Your beliefs about Jesus should have impact because Christianity is about repentance and faith not intellectual assent. What do I mean by that? If you believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of your longings, all of your desires, all of your needs, and not sex, it will impact the way you use your sexuality. And if it doesn't, you don't really believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all your desires. If, if you believe that Jesus is the one who secures my life, 
Jesus is the one who keeps me safe. Jesus is the one who gives me value and worth before the Father and not money. It will affect how you spend and look at your money. And if it doesn't, you don't really believe that. So it's all well and good to say, I got Jesus as Lord. I come into church and I sing. Is there repentance in your life? Why do you call me Lord, Jesus says, and you don't do what I say? What kind of a Lord is that? It means letting him wash your feet. It means believing what he says. It means obedience. And and listen, when I say obedience, one more thing on this. Obedience doesn't just happen in the church. Did you notice that what, what Psalm 2 says the Son is promised? It doesn't say, I promise you the church. I promise you a bunch of Christians. It says, I promise you the nations. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch Reformed theologian and, and statesman, famously said that there is now, since the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, there is now no square inch on this planet over which Jesus does not declare, mine. Mine. If that is the case, obedience to our king means not just personal piety, but public policy. Not just individual salvation, but societal transformation. Do we believe that we will accomplish some kind of utopia? No. Come on now. Jesus has got to come back to do that. But what it does mean is that we hold that our faith will have an impact in how we work, how we neighbor, how we vote, or it is no faith at all. So it means letting him wash your feet. It means believing what he says. It means obeying. And then lastly, it means worship. In John 9, after Jesus heals this dude born blind, he reveals himself to this guy, and this guy begins worshiping him. And strangely, if you're, if you're reading this, especially holding, uh, like understanding that this guy who is suddenly bowing down before Jesus is Jewish, like rabidly monotheistic, And Jesus does not stop him. He says, it is right and good to worship me. It is the proper response, not only because of what Jesus has done for us, but because of who he is. Jesus is the God we've offended. He is the ruler we've rebelled against, but he is also the one that took the treasonous death that we deserved because he loved us. If someone does that for you, the only logical response is to worship him. Friends, we hail him as king this Sunday because of what we celebrate next Sunday. He lived for us. He died for us. And then he rose again to be proclaimed Savior and Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are king. We are a stubborn people, though. And the one who speaks worst of all We are a people who are dead set on our own rule, our own authority. Forgetting, Lord, that we were made to line up under you. And so, Lord, we pray your mercy. We pray forgiveness. We pray that you would enact your rule in our lives. That we would come to you to to be washed, to to believe, to, to obey, and to worship. And that as we, as a community, do that, that you would send us out into the city to enact your kingdom in this city. Not to impose it, but to enact it. So that our city might flourish. And so that the world might see that there is a power greater in the world than power.
there is a strong love that overcomes all fear and death and sin. And Lord, work that through us. Prepare us, Lord, even this week, as we think about your kingship, prepare us to celebrate your glorious resurrection next week. Propel us out into this week through, through the sacrament and through worship for your glory. And for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.